0: From the lowest dungeon to the highest peak, we bring you a 20-year celebration of the Lord of the Rings. We smote the ruin of Fellowship of the Ring upon the mountainside, but that was not the end. We've been sent back until our task is done. This is My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast, and we come back to you now at the turn of the tide. you fools! I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb.
1: And I'm Emily, also known as JRR Tweeting.
0: Today's episode is You Shall Not Pass, our introductory episode to 2002's The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers. But first, our spoiler warning. While The Ring may have passed out of all knowledge and memory, these movies have not. We will provide recaps in every episode, but we assume you know these films well enough, and we will be also greedily delving into the source text, interviews, commentaries, and maybe even The Hobbit films. So to kick off our Two Towers coverage, we will start with our own personal anecdotes of coming to the Two Towers film. I do apologize to Emily, as coming to these movies when she did, I assume she just watched the Two Towers right after (laughs) Fellowship of the Ring or near enough. Not to undervalue her first impressions, it's just a different context than awaiting the theatrical release one year after Fellowship of the Ring. As we discussed over 20 episodes ago, I was a bit late to the first movie and caught it around Oscar time after its initial theatrical run. But I was instantly Lord of the Rings pilled, and The Two Towers became easily my most anticipated movie at the time, more so than the coming Matrix and Star Wars and X-Men sequels. That fall leading up to the 2002 winter release was also my first at college, where we spent a lot of downtime watching DVDs on our PlayStation 2s between classes and nights out. Fellowship was a huge dorm go-to, since you could throw it on and leave it on and dip in and out of your favorite scenes. It was still all fresh to us, too. DVDs back then took around nine months following theatrical runs to hit the shelves and rental market. Uh, Fellowship of the Ring had an August 6, 2002 release. So here we are, all anticipating the next movie, watching the first one repeatedly. And just how it shook out, no one in my core group had read Lord of the Rings, so we were all obliviously hyped for what was to come. (laughs) And then, and then, we got what remains to this day my favorite cinematic trailer of all time, the last half of which we will drop in right now. You must lead the people to Helm's Deep. I order the king, the city must empty!
1: Where is she? The woman who gave you that jewel? The alliance between men and elves is over. Our time here is ending. Arwen's time is ending. Let her go. Where is it?
0: Just tie him up and leave him!
1: No! You know the way to Mordor. No dawn. For men. It's the ring. Bruno! It's
0: taken hold of you. You have the gift of foresight. Tell me what you have seen. He
1: is not coming back. The defenses have the hope they will hold. There is nothing for you here. Only death.
0: Boy, I can feel that 18-year-old energy in me again. I am living. First, the music for that clip may be familiar to you. The track is called Lux Aeterna and is the main theme for the Darren Aronofsky film Requiem for a Dream. The combination of that song with Lord of the Rings imagery was instantly iconic. Go search any part of the internet for Requiem for a Tower and you'll find a shit ton of hits. Then, of course, was the content of the trailer. Everything looked bigger. The riders of Rohan and Easterlings with full-on armies and cavalries. Everything seemed more perilous. The odds that much steeper. A giant Uruk army. The ring bearer in bonds. But also, there was hope. Gandalf's back, and this time, he's white. (laughs) And the part part that really blew my mind was the taming of Smeagol. This huge, unused plot element from film one, Gollum, was about to enter our story in a big way. I remember the chills I got from this trailer when Frodo asked, You know the way to Mordor? Just the coolest plot turned to me. I was ready to lap this film fucking up, and boy, would I. So the movie released in the U.S. on Wednesday, December 18, 2002. The following day, Thursday, was when I would be returning to my parents after my first semester at university, and it coincided with all my best friends also returning home from their schools. So after the first time we had been separated after growing up for over a decade with each other, we were reuniting for the first time with our two-tower screening. It was an 11.30 p.m. screening, so we had ourselves a time beforehand. Lots of junk food from Wendy's, perhaps some pipe weed, <laughs> who's to say? But our minds and hearts were lit for this oncoming three-hour movie experience. And how does this movie start? With the free-fall monster wizard fight. <laughs> Me and my five friends were all holding onto our seats for dear life. We had no idea that was going to be the opening punch. In mere seconds, we were back in Middle Earth, back in the thick of the drama, back in the sorrowous nadir from that first film, only for it not to be the giant L for Gandalf as we first thought. To this day, it remains my favorite opening scene from any movie, the perfect attention grabber, the perfect reminder, the perfect encapsulation of what I want in big blockbuster epics. The trailer I played earlier only had flashes of this fight scene, and when you're watching it in 72p in QuickTime format (laughs) on Netscape Navigator, you aren't really catching these things. We weren't quite yet at freeze every frame of the trailer to analyze it discourse. (laughs) And honestly, the hits only kept coming for me. Hearing the theme for Rohan when the hunters arrive at the Gap, Aragorn tracking Merry and Pippin's escape, Treebeard's debut, Gandalf and Theoden. Good Lord, I remember my theater losing its mind uh, when Smeagol first talked to himself, followed by the collective gasp of Legolas jumping on his horse like that. (laughs) The arrival of Faramir, as I'm a guy who latches onto secondary characters as such. The return of the Nazgul. A glimpse of the Oliphants and lands of Mordor. Helms deep, helms deep, helms deep. A wet dream for a boy who loves action, war, and fantasy movies. The Last March of the ants is possibly my favorite scene in any movie, ever, and Sam's speech to close this film will have me bawling every time. The Two Towers very much might be my favorite movie. It's easily my favorite of this trilogy, though I think all three show the same quality. But aside from The Fugitive and In Bruges and Empire Strikes Back and The Godfather Part 2, this is it. This is the menu ideal for a movie, everything I want. And just for some accounting, this movie has... My favorite opening scene in any movie, my favorite scene in any movie, my favorite quote from any movie, looks like meat's back on the menu, boys, and my favorite instance of someone breaking their toe on set. (laughs) It would also be several firsts for me. The Two Towers, because of all this love I'd have for it, would go on to be the first movie I'd ever see multiple times in theaters, something I'd do a lot more going forward. At this point, I have seen the movie four times in theaters, thrice during the original run, and once more recently at my local indie theater, The Music Box. It would also be the first movie I watched on Christmas Day. Christmas was never much in our family being raised Hindu, and when all of us were past our toy-getting days, Christmas became even less of a thing. So it would become a prime movie day for me, and basically every year since 2002, I have spent my Christmas Day watching or re-watching some movie in a the theater. Phew, okay, I'm done. I'm sorry if my personal history with this film isn't of that much interest to you, but if you want to go to the inception of what eventually led us to wanting to start a Lord of the Rings podcast, it was this movie for me. A movie I was extremely hyped for and delivered on more levels than I needed it to. Usually hype is coupled with disappointment, but not this time. If I had to say any one movie made me the movie watcher that I am today, it would be The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers.
1: I'm having to like take deep breaths as I sit here because I've been all day at work. I've been like vibrating with excitement because I'm so excited to start talking about this movie and I'm so excited to start all of this. And I'm like, oh my God, this is today's the day, today's the day, today's the day. Um, And the funny thing for me is, I, as you rightly pointed out, have absolutely none of this history with this film. Um, I I think I talked briefly in our very first episode about how for years and years and years I avoided uh, The Lord of the Rings as much as possible just to be a little bit of a contrarian, which I do love to be. Um, And so by the time I would got around to watching it just a couple of years ago, um, I had this sort of, I didn't know the plot, of The Lord of the Rings. I definitely didn't know the plot of The Two Towers, which was to me like the middle movie and not really anything else. Um, And I definitely right now don't remember the first time I ever watched The Two Towers. I'm sure it was like very closely after Fellowship. Um, But for me, the one thing that I do remember is all of the immense hype around this movie. And this was only, you know, this was, um, I've totally lost track of years now. I think this may have been like 20 18, 2019. So it wasn't quite the 20th anniversary yet. Um, And it wasn't like it was in the news for any particular reason. But I remember tweeting something along the lines of I'm about to watch The Two Towers for the first time. And I think I got a million replies being like, this is the best movie you'll ever watch. This is the best Lord of the Rings movie. If this isn't your favorite Lord of the Rings film, you are garbage. (laughs) Like, I remember everybody had opinions on the film. Everybody wanted to share their opinions on the film and everybody's opinions seem to be, this is the best thing you'll ever watch. So it is kind of funny to me that I definitely don't remember <laughs> watching it for the first time. I don't remember any of my first impressions. <laughs> but for me, the thing that really sticks out is just how loved this movie is and how sort of integrated into like our, our cultural kind of like zeitgeist it is. Um, despite having avoided uh, The Lord of the Rings, like the plague for for decades, really. I do remember they're taking the hobbits to Isengard from, you know, the kind of early days of YouTube and, and that even then is someone who, and, and when I want to avoid things, I'm very good at avoiding things. Even then it was sort of this unavoidable thing. And even I had to begrudgingly be like, yeah, that is kind of catchy. Like, all right, fine. That, that, that is a Bob. And, and I, and I was kind of aware of a lot of the memes beforehand, um, and, and a lot of the sort of one liners, I, I definitely knew. I mean, the potatoes, that's impossible to not know. Um, and, and so by the time I got around to finally watching it, there was this immense amount of, of sort of like I had these immense expectations for it. Um, and to this day, it still shocks the hell out of me that it was not an overhyped film. I feel like there are a lot of films that I have watched in my life where people have hyped, hyped, hyped them up, and then I've sat through them and been like, "It's good." Like these movies are for sure good. They're great. Like they're they they are top tier, but definitely not worth the like mouth frothing behavior that they like trigger in people. And in this, in the case of this one, I'm like, "Yeah, it deserves mouth frothing." Like like the the like sort of furality that people get when they think and talk about these films is is absolutely justified. And I think like for me, one of the as with Fellowship, but I think probably to a greater extent with um, The Two Towers and certainly, you know, as I've gotten into years, it's been years now since the first time I watched it. This is one of these films where um, for the first time I was thinking about what I was actually seeing on screen. Um, And this may not have happened the first time, but certainly the second, third, fourth, fifth time that I, I watched it. It was making me stop and think about what I was actually seeing and, and the craft of film, and and making me, for the first time, feel like I could talk about these things, um, in a way that was meaningful. And you know, I'm, I'm I, you know, I got my gentleman sees through through high school English, uh, and uh, sort of decided that like talking about art in any sort of like analytic capacity was well beyond what my, you know, my capabilities were. But but the two towers has so much in it; and it's so rich artistically that I was like, Oh holy shit! I can't talk about this. Like I can't talk about this and 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 say the things that you know. I feel like clever artsy people say, and that that was like one of these things where I was like, oh fuck, all right. Like that is totally now in my wheelhouse, and I am totally capable of doing that. And um, and so now I'm just kind of sitting here, however many years on, and uh, you know, I'm gonna be the whole way through this podcast. Inevitably, I'm gonna be the grouchiest person alive about like the book versus adaptation uh, or movie adaptation choices, but. At the, the sort of core of it, this is like, I mean, I, I was about to say, oh, I could sit and talk about this film for hours, but that is exactly what we're about to do. This is like the film for me it is it is so fucking brilliant that it will there will never be another movie or another series really for me that will that will kind of trigger this level of like oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. <laughs> um, and and that, like, you know, I don't have 20 years of history with it yet, though I, it will come soon. <laughs> um, but, you know, two, three, four, however many years since it's been since 2018 is enough for, for my heart to kind of just explode at this. And I'm, I'm really just absolutely delighted to start with this now.
0: No, that's great. And one thing I'm now thinking about, because you kind of put it in my head based on, you know, your history with it, is at the time in 2002, we were just starting to enter um, the era where everything was getting sequels. It wasn't quite like franchise and cinematic universe level yet, but we were getting a lot of sequels uh, around this time and everything was getting a sequel if it was moderately successful. And usually with sequels at this point, um, it was diminishing returns. Like at this point, Empire Strikes Back was over 20 years ago. Um, The last great sequel was probably Terminator 2, which came out in 1992, which is a decade before this film. But if you look at the other major pop culture concerns I mentioned up top, uh, the Star Wars prequels, the Matrix movies, uh, they were kind of diminishing returns, um, at least viewed from the first and the second. And some people weren't even a fan of, say, The Phantom Menace to begin with. So um, it was definitely sequels were not like treated now cuz like now everybody wants just the latest iteration of the like three ongoing IPs that exist in the world. Uh but like back then sequels were not viewed as necessarily always going to be good or even commercially successful. A lot of times they had drop offs as opposed to now where each subsequent like Spider-Man movie makes a billion dollars more than the previous one. Uh so it was like a different time so I think part of the reason that there's such a strong affection for the two towers is it really felt like our empire in a way that we got a sequel to something we cared about. And it wasn't a letdown. And the year that we spent being excited for it actually paid off, which, you know, rarely happens. I can't think of too many times where I've been super stoked for something and it just met expectations, if not exceeded them. Uh, It feels few and far between these days.
1: So that's actually uh, triggering a, a thought in my head, which is, um, I, and I know you said you didn't read the books um, between them, but you know this the, the, this film kind of came out at the the sort of when the, when the web is really taking off um, for the first time, and I guess I'm wondering, like, do you remember there being like any sort of like nascent kind of internet? I mean, obviously fandom had existed, but like that sort of nascent internet fanny kind of culture around this film, like were people, obviously the books existed, but were people like speculating on what the plot would be? Do you do you remember any of that from, you know, the, the sort of gap between Fellowship and The Two Towers?
0: I, I mean, we were definitely speculating because, you know, we are the dumb people who didn't go and look at the actual books that exist out there. <laughs> So like when we found out that this was part of a trilogy and it would be the two towers and Return of the King after Fellowship, me and my friends thought we were so smart as does Return of the King mean Aragorn or do they mean Sauron (laughs) or something, you know, like something like, like we had no idea. Um, I think the two towers, like what the physical two towers were, we kind of figured from Fellowship, at least as the film was going to interpret them as the two towers. But like, yeah, we were unsure, like until we got that trailer I showed you, no one thought Gandalf was coming back. Um, We thought it was very Obi-Wan Kenobi, you face the demon, you sacrifice yourself so the younger generation can live. And that's just a very traditional storytelling mode or trope that we are all familiar with. So like that was something that wasn't even in our realm of imagination. And Rohan was not mentioned at all in (laughs) Fellowship, aside from the gap of Rohan, which you don't necessarily interpret as meaning a group of people or a nation or a kingdom, rather it could just be like the name of a lake or a plane or whatever. Uh, So like that was completely brand new element. All we knew is that we figured we'd get a lot more Gondor stuff, um, especially with the film ending on Boromir uh, and his death. We figured like news reaching Gondor would be, you know, kind of relevant to the next story. And it is, it's just, it is a little more roundabout. It goes through Faramir and Ithilien instead of straight to Minas Tirith. Uh, Again, Ithilien is not something that we actually knew existed at the time either, And I think that's kind of the fun part of this movie is it feels like a total explosion and expansion of the world and the lore and like the politics and ideology of it. Um, Because we talked about the kingdoms of men in fellowship, but we weren't actually in them um, existing within their rules of governance and within the military and political thinkings of those uh, kingdoms. So it just there were so many elements, whereas Fellowship of the Ring felt like, you know, a quest. Uh, this now starts feeling like a quest embedded in a much larger narrative. And that's probably, you know, kind of what the Lord of the Rings is relative to the legend- legendarium. It's a it's a smaller quest in the in a bigger telling of an entire world.
1: Yeah. No, so that's this is so interesting to me because I feel like I Um, not, not like in a, oh, I didn't get to do this and I'm sad that I didn't have that like same experience or whatever, but like, I couldn't sit down to watch these films for the first time without sort of having the like myth, I guess, of the, the Lord of the Rings books and like the Silmarillion kind of weighing heavily on that kind of initial experience. And so like hearing about how, like being able to go into that, not blind, but like effectively entirely spoiler free almost or like context free in in some ways like that man i am like i am genuinely jealous of that that just sounds like yeah so much fun
0: (laughs) yeah it really was and i i don't think i had anything spoiled for me outside of i don't consider trailer spoilers so nothing was really spoiled for me um oh oh i think i think south park did an episode that like kind of roughly apes oh yeah uh Butters be so <laughs> this will be a fun little thing. I know <laughs> South Park's kind of a ish, touchy subject, but they do a whole Lord of the Rings episode. And I think it was made before Return of the King and probably even before the two towers, it was uh cashing on the fellowship hype, but the boys accidentally, They want to rent Lord of the Rings from a video store. Um, Video stores were a thing we used to go to back in the day. And um, they accidentally got their uh, tape switched with uh, a movie the adults had rented, which was, uh, you know, an adult entertainment film, for lack of a better word. And uh, Butters, uh, one of the characters, watches the film and gets corrupted like Gollum um, because he sees this really messed up uh, porno film. Um, And no no one else knows like that the films were switched because they watched the Lord of the Rings proper before the tapes were switched. And then they go on this merry quest to return the tape back to uh, the video store. But, you know, Butters is golemified and he doesn't want it destroyed. He wants to keep it. It's his precious now. (laughs) And in the end, they end up throwing Butters down um, the video return shoot along with the video (laughs) itself. And he's just kind of cradling it as he drowns in the other return video cassettes and that was the only spoiler I had for the ending of <laughs> Return of the King, but that was something that, like, it happened, and I'm like, oh, is this telling me what's going to happen? But I kind of forgot it in the moment until literally Sam and Frodo and Gollum were at the cracks of doom. I'm like, oh, this this rings a bell.
1: Oh, wow. my God.
0: <laughs> um, wow, that is an incredible memory you unlocked. I had no idea that... I still held on to that one.
1: I was gonna say that's like a total like time cap, like uh, that is time capsule from such a specific year. Like I, like I obviously was not aware in the year two thousand two, but that that to me feels like I've just been transported back to like the year maybe two thousand seven, two thousand eight. I'm like, oh my god, (laughs) it's it's wild to think. uh, Well, you know, non sequitur at this point, but amazing to think how much like all the the sort of world and the the cultural landscape has changed in just twenty years. Oh,
0: for sure. Uh, They do make fun of Harry Potter in that South Park episode, too, so uh, that has aged quite well, I would say. (laughs) towers opens the way most great blockbusters do with the logo of their production company (laughs) look i know it's just a product of being obsessed with these movies and this one in particular but the new line cinema logo with the one ring theme coming in behind it has become as iconic to me as the 20th century fox logo before a star wars or the paramount mountain dissolving into a real mountain like in raiders of the lost ark One day, George Lucas will no longer have his claws in me, but today is not that day. (laughs) Today, we simp. You can also tell I'm padding out the recap here, since it will be our briefest yet. After the golden, rusted The Lord of the Rings title card, we find ourselves in mountains. Mountains, Gandalf. (laughs) The Misty Mountains, to be exact. First-time viewer Manu just thought of this as a mood piece, a slow, deliberate resettling into Middle-earth. Landscapes and mountains were among the highlights of that first film, so it's easy to get a cheap pop from the crowd with some awe-inspiring vistas. But as the helicopter flies and rotates around the mountain, voices can be heard. What is this, I thought? Gandalf. I faintly hear Frodo yell. The dark fire will not avail you, just slightly more audible. Ah, okay, they're going to do some recap stuff before the rising action starts. Okay, whatever. And then, as if reading my mind and wanting to prove me wrong... The camera zooms in through the mountainside, and immediately we are on the bridge of Casa Doom. And Gandalf vs. the Balrog, bout one, is happening, exactly how we saw it in the Fellowship. There's not going to be a lot of sound clips to grab this episode, so I'm just going to cheat and play this segment, which is how we heard it on our episode with Emmett several months ago. I remember thinking to myself, man, Peter Jackson, what an asshole. Just immediately trauma-dumping the saddest part of Fellowship on this midnight audience. (laughs) Frodo screams, Boromir holds him back, Gandalf struggles to pull himself up, and a fly you fools later, Gandalf is once again falling into the great abyss. But that was not the end, in the wizard's own words. Instead of the camera following the fellowship out of Moria with sadness, instead it plummets into freefall, where we find Gandalf not falling to his doom, but doing his own James Bond Moonraker-esque dive to catch up to his sword glam drink. I'll save my commentary for the analysis section, but at this point, my 18-year-old brain was fully exploding. With Elven Greatsword in hand, Gandalf continues on his spelunking trajectory until he catches up with the Balrog of Morgoth for the rematch, the Thrilla in Manila, <laughs> or Moria, whatever. Gandalf is able to position himself on the beast's chest, driving Castile into the charcoal exterior of the fiery demon. Flaming hot cinders fly wherever sword meets flesh. The Balrog fights back, of course. It punches Gandalf off to get some separation, and we see both hitting rock outcroppings on their plummet downward. At one point, Gandalf grasps one of the creature's horns, almost like a bull rider. The screen is just vibrant at this point, the shadows of Moria fleeing from the bundle of fire and smoke and wings and ash coming loose as these two great beings tussle. As they approach the bottom, the camera pans away for a long shot, and we can see the fire from a distance, falling, falling and finally crashing into the cold waters below. And that ends what has been, and should stand to be, the shortest recap in our coverage of the three Lord of the Rings films. (laughs) Two Towers starts with the scene airlifted right out of Fellowship. We are once again on the bridge of Khazad-dûm, Gandalf face-to-face with the Balrog. In my recap, I tried to give you my thought process watching this the first time. Are they doing some big picture recaps? Are they using this memory as a way to put the audience back in Middle-earth? Or was this just salt in the wound? We knew Gandalf was coming back. It was in the trailers for these books from 50 years prior. But I hadn't put much thought into the machinations or the A to B of it. I had been playing fantasy video games for a decade by then, I've seen some pretty flimsy narrative contrivances, so I was prepared for whatever and not really thinking about it. Still, I can remember my delight when the camera didn't follow the remaining fellowship out the east gate, but went down with the wizard and monster instead. I thought this narrative branch had been pruned, but rather it had just grown in the margins between films, down in the deep dark of Casa dum In the Fellowship of the Ring extended edition, Galadriel has a line about how how all that Gandalf says and does is not really knowable to the lesser beings of Middle-earth, no shade just in terms of ability, and I feel that applies to the audience in this moment. Moria is where we learned about what Gandalf was capable of in the first place. Go back to our Drums in the Deep episode where we break down the metamorphosis from kindly stoner grandad to avenging angel. A fall like that, you assume death unless you're Anakin Skywalker jumping cars in Coruscant. Even re-watching the brief shot of his fallen fellowship, his arms spread wide, almost Christ-like as if he's being martyred in the moment. And as a Hindu-raised atheist, I am choosing not to explore this imagery any further. But when we come to in The Two Towers, it's clearly his concerted effort to control his body, grab his sword, and rip this Balrog a new asshole.
1: Yeah, I mean, I... I, This is just the most brilliant way to start this film. I think, um, there, there are a lot of ways that they could have could have done this, I think, and none of them would have been half as so effective as, as this one is. Um, and I think, you know, far from sort of putting us back into this heartbreaking grief that we feel in, in fellowship. Um, it also does this really sort of unique, um, mirror, um, to the start of the fellowship film. So fellowship starts with the battles of old, Um, And they are epic battles. You know, they're battles that feature rows and rows and rows and rows of elves. They are these, you know, sort of big hulking figures of legend. And they're not really battles featuring people like us. They're the Iliads and the Odysseys, the Achilles, Patrocluses, Hectors and Priams. They're not really our next door neighbor. But this battle is happening in the here and now, and it's happening with Gandalf. And he's kind of our next door neighbor if the kind of weird old next door neighbor and there's this just incredible sense of oh my god the old battles have come back to haunt us and now we are actually going to have to fight these old battles all of the history that we just walked through in fellowship we are going to have to fight it for real now and it's this amazing way to kind of blow open what the scale and breadth of this film is going to be. If Fellowship had some epic moments, all of those epic moments were in the past. But now with this start here, with the way that they kick open the front door of this film, we know that everything incredibly intense is about to come.
0: Oh, that's great, I love it. I also love the mentions of Greek mythology because we'll be circling back to that one as well a little bit later. (laughs) And I got to admit, Gandalf catching the sword in Freefall might be the coolest thing ever, the most swag in the Lord of the Rings films. It even makes a satisfying schwink when he grabs it. I love the sound design, even though it probably wouldn't make that sound. If a sword falls in Moria and no one is around to hear it, does it? Eh, never
1: mind. Yeah, I mean, this is like top three weapon handling moments in these films, I think. Um, for me, it's like this one, uh, Aragorn smacking the dagger away in Fellowship, and then Eomer changing grip on his lance mid-charge. And like beyond that, I can't even really think of anything that comes close to to, to this. It is is just a brilliant, brilliant look.
0: But we haven't talked about Glamdring, Gandalf's sword, and this is pretty much the best time to do it. It is a hand and a half sword, meaning it can conceivably be wielded with one or two hands. We see Gandalf do the one-handed thing in Moria and the Siege of Minas Tirith, wielding sword in his right hand while he twirls and bops with his staff in the other. And in this sequence against the Balrog, and again when he fights at the Black Gate in Return of the King, he two hands Glamdring. In both cases, he had lost his staff prior to the battle. His grey staff fell just moments before this, and his white staff would be broken by the Witch King, or so I hear. I don't fuck with the extended editions. <laughs> Hand and a half swords are also known as bastard swords, which, yes, I learned from George R.R. R. Martin in <laughs> A Game of Thrones. And also, yes, the bastard Jon Snow sword, Longclaw, is indeed a bastard sword. Glamdring translates to foe hammer in quenya. Dring is the Noldorin word for beat or strike, and is also referred to as the beater by orcs. Its history supposedly goes back to the First Age, probably wielded by Turgon during the War of the Jewels, and this is where I smartly shut up and let Emily tell you all about that.
1: <laughs> um, yeah, so I think we need a claxon for like the Finwëans fucking things up yet again um, moments in this podcast, but here it is: the Finwëans fucking things up yet again. So, Turgon is the second son of Fingolfin, who is half brother to Feanor. Um, because the high kings of the Noldor simply could not stop getting themselves killed, Turgon went from being the ninth in line to the throne and like with immortal beings, that's actually a super long distance from the throne to literally being the high king of the Noldor effectively overnight. During the first age, Turgon was often accounted as like Morgoth's most feared enemy, um, mostly because he hid in the elven city of Gondolin, which was itself a very well-hidden city, well, until its last moments, and even then it kind of has to be sold out. Um, And this is something that we will come back to in much greater detail in prep for the Rings of Power TV series. But what's important to know here is that Gondolin, Turgon's city, was well-hidden, and that Turgon's ability to valiantly lead his people scared the ever-loving shit out of Morgoth. And, of course, because all roads lead in this Turgon is the grandfather to Elrond.
0: The sword would be unaccounted for for nearly 6,000 years after that, but it would be discovered in a troll horde in the Third Age, 2941. This scene is depicted in the first Hobbit film, An Unexpected Journey. There is also found Orcist, Thorin Oakenshield's weapon, and a blade to be named later. This is Sting. You've seen it before, haven't you, Gollum. <laughs> Like Sting, Glamdring would glow if orcs were near, described as both blue and white at various times. This, however, was removed entirely from these films, probably to give special emphasis on Sting, and also because there is zero screen time dedicated to Gandalf's sword, which is totally fine. And the crossguard on the film version has rooms inscribed on it, and it reads, Turgon Aran Gondolin, Tortha Garamatha Glamdring, Vegil Glamdring Guddaelo, Dom an Glamhoth. Did I do okay there?
1: Yeah, brilliant.
0: <laughs> Thank you. And what that actually translates to is Torgon, King of Gondolin, wields, has, and holds the sword Glamdring, foe of Morgoth's realm, hammer of the orcs. The rune idea came from the Weta workshop itself as an idea that elves put their skill and quote-unquote magic into the sword with runes. Which, I'm not sure how people feel about this, but this is pretty much standard in terms of how film craftsmen put their own little stamps on their work. And I like it. But that said, it's probably in the wrong language based on when the sword would have been forged, but that's not even entirely clear either.
1: Yeah, so this is kind of a bit of fun, uh, complex, uh, Elvish linguistic politics. So, uh, King Thingol of Doriath, who was the lord of Beleriand, which, as we talked about briefly before, was the the sort of western part of the continent of Middle-earth. Um, and he was one of the uh, elves who did not cross over into Amman and kept his kingdom in Beleriand while the Noldor and some of the Teleri went over to Amman. When the Noldor started crossing back uh, into Beleriand, he immediately banned their language, which was Quenya. Um, basically, as a way to be like, fuck you guys, don't you dare come screw our stuff up. Um, And Sindarin instead became basically the lingua franca of the elves. And it was widely spoken in Turgon's city of Gondolin. That said, uh, Turgon's household spoke Quenya amongst themselves. So that the runes are in Sindarin could be interpreted as like a sort of political concession on behalf of Turgon. He knew that swords were powerful political symbols and wanted to unite his people, which is all of the elves of Middle-earth, in opposition to Morgoth. So therefore Sindarin... It's a bit strange, but to be honest, I get it.
0: Yeah. Uh, these aren't things that are really meant uh, to be like broken down as such. I think we just have Easter egg brain in 2022 <laughs> about pop culture. Um, I think it is more just like kind of a cute way to put your own little stamp on things that I don't even think in the standard definition quality we watched these movies back in 2002. You could even probably make out the runes. Uh, Probably that they're there, but not actually read them as they're laid out.
1: No, I mean, I sure as hell can't watching, uh, like, high definition now with my garbage eyesight.
0: (laughs) We also see Gandalf imbue the blade with lightning before stabbing the Balrog to smote its ruin in a later scene, which reminds me of Chrono Trigger, where one of Chrono's teammates imbues his blade with elemental power for attack. This is actually a staple in most fantasy RPGs, but I'm trying to diversify my references for y'all. Can't be all Thrones and Simpsons. This film shows us the fall now, and later when Gandalf the White debuts, we see the very end of the battle with that lightning-powered heart thrust. This battle, or at least its end, would be known as the Battle of the Peak. Gandalf would be burned by fire, more on that in a second from Emily, and again by the deep cold of the waters below. He would then stalk the Balrog through the Dark Amoria and up the Endless Stair, which is topped with Durin's Tower. We can save the rest for when Gandalf tells us himself, or at least what matters to us, what happened after Gandalf smote his foe's ruin upon the mountainside.
1: Yeah, so there are two really sort of important uh, symbolic elements to this fight. Um, And naturally, um, both of them are religious. So first off, there's this issue of the fire. After Jesus was crucified and before he was resurrected, the Bible says that he passed through hell and effectively brought salvation to all of the people who had died between the start of the world and Jesus' death. It was a moral, you know, (laughs) turning of the tide, and that is called the harrowing of hell. Then, here's a little bit from Catechism 1214. This sacrament is called baptism, after the central rite by which it is carried out. To baptize means to plunge or amends. The plunge into the water symbolizes the catechumen's burial into Christ's death, from which he rises up by resurrection with him as a new creature. So, obviously, as Gandalf fights the Balrog, we do literally see him plunge into water, and there's this immediately obvious baptismal effect. Then, there's this from the baptismal rite. You have become a new creation, and have clothed yourself in Christ. See, in this white garment, the outward sign of your Christian dignity. I mean, you see what I mean? Like, this isn't exactly subtle work here, and it's certainly not Tolkien's most subtle work, and it plays brilliantly in the films. But this whole thing is just an absolute, and I'm not going to call it an allegory because I know Tolkien has his thing with allegories, but it's a beautiful symbol representing... The baptism and that, that sort of uh, uh, figure and liturgical right within, you know, the, the certainly the Catholic Church and, and the wider Christian churches. And I think they really do turn what is, you know, for people who are atheists and who have had to see baptisms before, a fairly mundane ceremony into something really fucking epic and cool and this, this massive battle between good and evil uh, and and I would say far less sort of pedestrian than just dunking a well-dressed baby in some water.
0: Oh, no, that's wonderful. And I just, you know, not um, I'm an atheist now, but I was raised Hindu, which I mentioned earlier. So like this sort of imagery would just kind of completely go over my head. Whereas if I like I grew up in a pretty, you know, Christian area broadly, there was there's one mega church by us (laughs) and a couple of Catholic churches. So like, predominantly, almost all my friends went to church on Sunday in some fashion. And if I, you know, had that kind of upbringing, I wonder if I would have like picked these things out like right away. Cause as you say, they're, they're not very subtle, um, but kind of being divorced from all of that stuff um, to me, I just read it as kind of a miracle, um, but like not a (laughs) divine miracle, uh, just like, you know, something that couldn't be explained happened. Um, Whether it's forces of good or evil or a God, again, like my framing of these films is completely agnostic. Uh, So it just, it's, there's probably reasons I really didn't think about why or how Gandalf was coming back, like I mentioned in my recap, because I'm not thinking about the imagery as such, because I don't have those connections, which is really fascinating to me.
1: Yeah, so I, I think I kind of benefit because, like, uh, and in case it's not obvious by how much I bring this up, but um, I one of the reasons I kind of went back and, and watched Lord of the Rings for, like, the second and third time uh, in 2019, 2020, or whatever, is because I was taking a course on, on uh, Dante's uh, Divine Comedy. Um, and uh, my, my my, my tutor, my lecturer at the time, uh, would often bring up uh, the, the sort of uh, analogies, uh, comparisons between uh, Lord of the Rings and specifically Dante's Inferno. Um, and I remember sitting in, in class one day, and this was, it was fucking awful. It was a nine in the morning class, and I think it was like on a Wednesday or something. And Tuesday nights, there were che- whatever. I, I was a, a student delinquent um, and not well behaved, and so would sometimes show up to class slightly hungover. Um, and uh, I remember just sitting there in, in that 9 a.m. class in one of those sort of small, awful classrooms that are all built out of like garbage IKEA shit um, and hearing about the creature Gollum uh, and hearing. Um, Hearing this sort of chat about how, you know, he he's sort of analogous to uh to this sort of guide figure and he takes over uh for, for uh Gandalf and, and how he's he's meant to be uh this this important like spiritual sort of antithetical spiritual guide or whatever. And and the guy sitting next to me was like, Does that mean that Virgil is Gollum? Um, and everybody was cracking up um around the table because they'd all obviously seen. Uh, seen The Lord of the Rings, and I was like, oh, fuck, now I gotta go catch up. Um, and honest to God, if we hadn't been actively like going through and like having to annotate uh, the divine comedy and then find like fucking scriptural references uh, to substantiate like our arguments or whatever, I would not have picked up on any of this biblical shit. Like I was like, a my family never went to church. We're our heathens in the like truest sense of the <laughs> word. Um, and honestly, like if I hadn't felt so owned by everybody getting that joke around me in class, I there's a good chance I probably never would have come back to the Lord of the Rings like in a, in a lot of Ways, but you know, contrarianism rules the day, I guess.
0: Well, I guess me and you will burn like the heathen kings of old in the uh, end.
1: Way. So.
0: <laughs> I know you have a lot of thoughts about that, Bond, and I'm gonna <laughs> just kind of move on <laughs> um as we transition into our uh film craft and uh cinematography portion of this episode. I'm gonna talk about James Bond right now because reasons, reasons mostly being that I love James Bond movies. <laughs> I mentioned Moonraker during the recap, so I just want to shout out that 007 film here, which I think, of the 25 Bond movies, is probably the worst. Terrible film, it even has a pigeon do a double take when Bond's gondola turns into a car driving the streets of Venice. But the first 10 minutes of Moonraker are as good as Bond gets, three of which go to the title song sequence sung by Shirley Bassey for the self-titled Moonraker song. Shirley Bassey also did the more famous title songs for Goldfinger and Diamonds Are Forever. The Bond scene before it finds Bond cornered by enemy spies aboard an airplane. The pilot jumps out, leaving Bond alone and parachuteless, but then Bond himself is pushed out of the plane by the henchman Jaws. Again, Bond has no (laughs) chute. Bond gathers himself, and while in freefall, contorts his body aerodynamically so that he starts to catch up with the pilot who had jumped ahead of him and who has a parachute yet unopened. He fights that guy in midair and takes his parachute. But then comes Jaws, a towering behemoth compared to James himself, free-falling to catch up with 007 and bite him, which is Jaws' kill move. <laughs> God, I love these goddamn <laughs> stupid movies. Bond fights him off, parachutes to safety, Jaws's parachute doesn't open, and he crashes into a big-top circus, Kicking off the clown show that is the rest of that movie. (laughs) That scene is pretty much all stunt work and one of the best set pieces in the Bond catalog. Our two towers scene is, of course, mostly wires and CGI, but it has that same gravity. Gandalf going for his sword like Bond for the parachute and then taking on one of his rivals in Freefall. Maybe it's a stretch to bring this up now, but what's the point of having a podcast if you can't shout about your favorite things, you know? (laughs) Which, if you like 007, we have done two 007 episodes over at Podcast Sans Frontiers, and James Bond movies are the primary inspiration for the narrative of Metal Gear Solid. Shouting about my favorite things and plugging my other work, I got this podcasting thing down. (laughs) Okay, not unlike that final battle in Fellowship, I'm mostly just content to point out all the little things I love about the Gandalf-Balrog fight beyond just the Bond vibes. Hearing Frodo's yell fade into the distance as Gandalf falls. Initially, the screen is all black around Gandalf as he falls until the fire of the Balrog slowly starts to fill the screen with the trail of smoke leading the way. As more of the Balrog can be seen, the surrounding caverns become visible. Great understanding of lighting in an obviously very fake or CGI scene. Gandalf grabs Glamdring in stride and then sticks it forward to telegraph his direction, almost as if cutting a path through the smoke that's clouding his eyes, a different type of smoke than what normally turns his eyes around. <laughs> the little swords shrink, sound that he makes when he grabs it, which I've already mentioned. The Balrog's whole body is aflame, and you can see molten cracks in its skin alive with orange, which is just super cool
1: it's one of these first moments of like really incredible uh creature design in these films um and i think you know this is my favorite bit of creature design bar something that doesn't actually show up in the theatrical uh cuts uh, um yeah doesn't show up in the theatrical cuts of these films which is the mouth of Sauron. but i think this kind of sets the precedent for like really beautiful creature design that is in a lot of ways not necessarily like pointedly understated because it's not like you can ignore this creature design but it's not like it's like In your face being like, this is the best creature design you've ever seen. It's more in your face like, holy shit, this dude is scary.
0: (laughs) Then we get upside down Gandalf. It's just funny thinking about editing these films and being like, we need half a second of Gandalf's head upside down with CGI fire around him. Really pulls the whole scene together. (laughs) And as they start to crash into the rocks around them, Gandalf grabs onto the horn of the Balrog to maintain proximity. I joked about it being like a bull rider, but then it also started making me think of the Minotaur, which seems to me as a design influence here. Moria is its own labyrinth with its own horned demigod in its center. The role of Theseus is then played by Gandalf, and hold the phone, I'm trying to come up with the ship of Theseus analogy here. (laughs) If the Grey Pilgrim is replaced by the White Rider, is it still Gandalf? (laughs) Anyways, let's talk about the big epic music behind this fight. Uh, We get the Gregorian chants coming in as the camera pans out for the long shot of them plummeting to the cold waters below. My mind immediately went to the Lord of the Rings on Prime trailer, uh, the Rings of Power trailer, sorry, uh, from just a few months ago, because that had a fireball comet shot in it that we discussed. And it just kind of reminded me of this on my most recent watch through. The song or the score track is known as Foundations of Stone on the Theatrical Edition soundtrack or Glam Drink on the Extended Edition soundtrack. I really wish I'd been able to find more on this piece of music like I have other parts of Shore's score. It's really most pronounced with that long shot, which could be the Maori chanters and grunters used in the Moria sequences from Fellowship, but the Gregorian chants usually are reserved for Wizard and Servants of the Dark Lord, which seems to be the better guess here.
1: Yeah, and Gregorian chants serve like a really important, and here we go again uh, with the Catholic Church. Uh, they serve a really important liturgical function for the Catholic Church. Um, they're kind of, well, they're not kind of. They are very much like a call and response for Mass. Um, Saint Augustine, uh, who, who's who is a uh, like a really crucial sort of like theoretician of the Catholic Church, once remarked that like when you pray in song, you're really praying twice, um, and that is is sort of like the the central role or justification for 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 music and in prayer. Um, and just for a brief history of like Gregorian chants, they kind of developed as this like incredibly simple way to bring communal song into the mass, um, for those who, who don't know, um, for most of the Catholic church's history, mass was delivered in Latin, um, regardless of whether or not the, the people in the parish and, in 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 whatever this, the sort of, um, uh, flock for the, the, the ministers was, uh, It was all done in Latin. Um, And so a lot of people would go sit through mass and not really understand what the fuck was going on, Um, particularly in uh, pre-modern Europe where people were broadly illiterate and even even modern Europe uh, where people weren't literate. uh, There was not necessarily an an easy way to engage people when they couldn't read the, the pages of the book uh, and they couldn't understand the things that were being said and and music was a good way to sort of bring in that uh that sort of active element um, in 1947 uh just as after these well uh, around the time that these books were being written, and um, Pope Pius, uh, who you may know as the shithead who favored useless neutrality during World War II, and um, issued an encyclical that identified Gregorian chants as like the people's song, and encouraged it as a mean of ha- means of having like active participation of the laity or or like the the non-clergy in mass. And so employing this and chant inspired music here is like a really, really brilliant way of linking up all of those kind of threads, like the Catholic heritage of the source text, the liturgical context of like active participation through music. And then of course, like the violent baptismal nature of what's unfolding on screen.
0: And this flavor of soundtrack, which also played when Saruman fought Gandalf in the Fellowship of the Ring, invokes O Fortuna a song most know from Excalibur, which I will drop in here now, but if you don't know it, I'd honestly be shocked. pretty unmistakable if you haven't seen excalibur you probably heard it in a commercial i am a thousand percent positive that there is a burger king commercial because i can hear the song and picture whopper uh, patties (laughs) being flipped in front of my eyes the song wasn't originally from that film though it was written by carl Orr for his cantata carmina Burana in the 1930s but the excalibur mention is very specific A few episodes back, we talked about how Lord of the Rings was kind of the first fantasy film that really did it right in terms of scope, scale, imagery, etc. Most fantasy before it was extremely hokey, both because of lack of technology and the general disinterest from mass audiences. When I think of films prior to 2001 that Peter Jackson was looking to for inspiration, Excalibur and Braveheart come to mind, in terms of laying down a style of action and aesthetic. I really believe in the film Medium as a Snowball, that it's gathering momentum from previous works as it plows forward. We got similar music drops in Fellowship early on during the Wizard fight and the Nine leaving Minas Morgul. While I no longer have this complaint I'm about to give you, in 2001, getting the most uber-epic music ever seemed a bit ham-fisted to me, not knowing the context or all the musical wizardry Shore was doing, Uh, with language. It seemed super early in that film when I was just trying to wrap my head around the stakes and scope of this world. But after a year of sitting with Fellowship of the Ring and eagerly anticipating the two towers, that demand for grandeur was burning in me. I got it now. So when the opening scenes go right to the big musical movement, I was like, yeah, correct. Let's fucking do this.
1: I think this is a really good moment to bring up, uh, sort of, some of the the the, the like production elements of uh, Howard Shore writing this score. Um, for those who quite reasonably don't know, um, typically film composers will spend a month, a couple months, uh, in advance of the film writing the score. Um, and they will do it in in sort of a quick turnaround time. And um, it will go uh, based off of either the script or uh, sort of early cuts of uh, the actual film itself. Um, and it will be very very closely connected to the film. Howard Shore, however, did not take this approach. And um, he spent years writing the music for the these films. Um, and one of I think one of the the really incredible things is that he didn't write music based off of the script. Um, he didn't write it based off of early cuts or storyboards or anything like that. He, he went away um, with the books and wrote music that was meant to score the books. Um, and you know that is part of the reason when I when I was sort of first reading the the books after having watched the films and, and listening, Ad nauseum to the score. I was kind of looking at the the song titles and being like, "Well, hang on, like, why are they mentioning you know Sons of Numenor or uh, or Foundations of Stone?" Is actually a good example of this. If that's not really anything that's mentioned in the 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 movies, like, what I mean, you know, obviously you don't have to name things directly uh, based off of the movies. Um, but it was kind of strange to me to see that, and and it is because these are the things that Howard Shore was actually drawing inspiration from within the books. Um, for for the, the the music of the score, and I think that in particular is really, really fascinating to me, because um, in in some ways, I, I would say, at least to my mind, it's this ringing endorsement of these films, because if he's gone away with the books and he's written music to broadly to accompany the books, obviously, primarily because he was getting paid to write it for the movies, but using the books in the first instance as his inspiration and then that music was able to fit and work so flawlessly with these films it says to me that these these things go you know really remarkably together and but then it also sort of gives us this uh incredible sense of like um as as you've pointed out many many times um there are a lot of uh elements uh reusable elements themes motifs um uh within the the, the broader score itself that Pick out and and build upon the literary themes of the book and really bring it to life within these films. And and, you know, I think that is almost, I would say, not never clearer, but it's really, really beautifully on show here in this scene in particular and this sort of uh, incredible and like very well thought out um, like intermingling of book text and uh, film text. And I and I would even say at this point the the sort of music text as its own interpretation and adaptation of the story.
0: Yeah, I think I read that Howard Shore, um, like you said, he wasn't really trying to score these movies, like, you know, how you see John Williams kind of scoring a Star Wars movie, he's kind of given a product and kind of build music around it. Um, but like what Shore, uh, Shore really wanted to do was kind of create leitmotifs for the various races Uh, kingdoms, and like, you know, specific concepts or ideas, like the one ring will have its own leitmotif, but then also the kingdom of Rohan will have its own leitmotif. And in that way, um, he's able to kind of set like a base theme for all these individual elements. And then as he brings them together, he's able to kind of mash them up, interplay with them, bastardize them. And in a way, it almost becomes... Very similar to language in a way. And I don't just mean his explicit call-outs or incorporation of language into his music, but his actual musical movements become a form of language. And just like in Tolkien's world where um, you know, words get bastardized or combined, or you know, may take a bit from a different influence, uh, we see that very same kind of uh what's the word I'm looking for here? Like kind of chemistry or alchemy come together with the music as well. Whereas by building these kind of very foundational elements, like foundations of stone, literally in <laughs> the soundtrack, um, he's able to bring to life this world because then it all feels very organic. And it's like, yes, this music should be playing here. This mu- The music always feels appropriate to what's happening on screen. Even if it's like two seconds of concerning hobbits in the middle of the darkest moments in Mordor, mm. it all feels of a piece because it feels like the music organically grew out of the same inspiration that the films came from, as opposed to just taking the films and trying to write music for that.
1: Yeah. I think in a lot of ways, actually, um, you know, not obviously not all films are adapted from books. Most films aren't adapted from books, but um, when an adaptation happens, I think the the process through which Howard Shore got to this score almost to me represents the kind of ideal process um, because it adds this another, this other sort of adaptive layer um to this overall project and you know we, like I'm especially bad at this but like shorthanding sort of Peter Jackson for the entire creative team uh, that's involved in these films and and in reality I think this is one of these uh rare sort of series where Peter Jackson as a director is obviously important to the project as a whole but there are so many, Not singular, but so many unique um, artistic voices that are playing into the project that you can pick out and you can see that there are all of these sort of not divergent, but like varying um, artistic interpretations of the Lord of the Rings that go into creating this film. And Howard Shores happens to be one of the strongest ones of these where it is. Um, it is very much like his own voice within this sort of wider project. And I think that to me sort of represents like what the ideal movie should be, where it's where it's this kind of collective uh, project, this, this sort of collective movement of art rather than the sort of like one tyrant does it all. Um, and, and I think like, you know, it shows that that sort of method is is far more effective, I think, in, in just how brilliant this this score and this film is.
0: Yeah, it's uh, exceedingly American or western or capitalist for us to start to ascribe films to individuals and this, you know, predates Lord of the Rings, but um I think we have a little bit lost sight of how much film is truly a collaborative effort or should be in its best iterations and this score specifically kind of speaks to like having that sound ideolo- ideology of production in mind where you're taking every aspect of it seriously and not just like, oh yeah, we'll tack on the music at the end. I mean, it would, it would have been very easy to just like say, yeah, we'll grab John Williams or James Horner. And after we film these three films, they can just do whatever they want to it. Um, But no, they like took the time. And like you said, these movies aren't musical in the way that the books are, but they found a way to engage with that um, in some level of the cinematic production, which is just fantastic. Uh, I wish more things would do it. Like you said. So moving into the token token book section, before I get out of the way for Emily to give you the history or the publication history of The Two Towers, I just want to point out that what we know of the Gandalf versus Balrog fight was presented to us in Chapter 5, The White Rider from Book 3 of The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers.
1: And I think uh, this is something that we mentioned, I believe, in our last episode about fellowship, but um, the length of time um, or the the time change between when information is revealed between the books and the films is actually quite significant here because although book three – um, or chapter five of book three doesn't sound like it's uh, a huge amount of time into uh, into the two towers volume. I mean, this is actually a, a substantial amount of time. I, I I don't have the book on me right now. It's actually weird. It's usually on my desk, and I'm like, oh, what the hell happened here? Um, but I think that's about a good hundred or so pages into uh, the two towers. And so you go as the reader that long without knowing what the hell happened to Gandalf and that's a really slow way to let information trickle out and i think sort of um it is is lent uh, or lends itself to to the overall feeling of like the books being a much slower sort of more um kind of more terror not terrifyingly tense but more sort of like uncomfortably tense uh story whereas the two towers films uh film rather um well films okay extended. In- theatrical, uh, give information a a lot quicker to great effect. Um, but it it's a different type of sort of fear and tension involved there in having that information and then being like, oh what the hell?
0: Oh yeah. And I get to be the one who actually comes in with the book information here because my brain prevents me from like hopping around books for this podcast. Like I just read the two towers straight through. And I was desperately trying to read through to get to chapter five last night, uh, the White Rider, uh, so I could have that ready for today's recording. And right before the White Rider chapter is the tree beer chapter, yes. which is the longest goddamn <laughs> chapter in the world. And I I I love it now, but like it is specifically like I don't know what the longest chapter is, and I'm sure there's stuff in Return of the King that's even longer. But compared to everything we had read before, the Treebeard chapter is just tremendously long. And I think part of that is almost deliberate um, to be, you know, to spend all that time with Treebeard. We have a lot of Ent history and Ent society to go over. But also because Treebeard himself is not very hasty (laughs) and takes his time telling us. But yes, it was yesterday. I was just like, come on, how much more do we got here (laughs) Um, before we got to this chapter? So it is it is. Well, even though it is the fifth chapter in The Two Towers, it does take its goddamn time to get there. And that's not a complaint, but that length is very much felt in the reading of the second book, or The sec- or *The Two Towers, rather. Uh, I hate how these books are structured. I know. I mean, I love it, but <laughs> it's just hard and annoying to make sure I relay correctly in podcast form.
1: I know. I'm always like on tender hooks on a lot of these things because I'm like, oh god, well the Tolkien purists like roast me for calling it the right like book two instead of volume two, and I'm like who who gives a shit? Um, but I think we like, actually <laughs> I'd forgotten that it was the Treebeard chapter right before that, and that also to me is actually sort of another part of this like change between uh this sort of guiding mindset between the films and the books, which is that. Um, the the as uh, you know well trodden ground at this point, but the books have this greater sort of emphasis on history um, and and the the linkages between uh, the the past and and the present. Um, and so by giving Treebeard, who oh no no I'm not going to do this now. Okay, deep breath. Um, it's fine. We have a Treebeard episode. Uh, Treebeard, who is this sort of uh, guardian of information, this gatekeeper, this historian, um, has his chapter just before Gandalf, and it's this important reminder. Um, like structural reminder that you have to remember what came before and you have to remember the history that gets you to where you are now before you can get to the more immediate consequences of that history in the present. Um, And the films, which are not, not concerned with history, but are far less concerned with history, are more keen on getting that recent history out there and you know what the consequence is already. And they want to explain the why, and they're not going to make you wait for it because that why, and knowing that why helps to build the more immediate tension rather than this sort of slow building thousands of years of tension waiting to be released.
0: All right, take a deep breath. It's time for you to shine here,
1: Emily. All right, let's fucking go. Cool. So, uh, I often forget uh, that I often forget that a lot of people don't handle, for example, tasks in the way that I handle tasks, which is to say that I will put things off for,, um, let's say 10 to 15 years and then do everything in a single spurt uh, in like a 13 hour fit of mania. Um, and this is what we now call uh, attention deficit disorder, <laughs> and they put you on a lot of fucking pills for that. Um, J.R.R. Tolkien took basically the same approach uh, to The Legendary and broadly, but also to The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. Um, Tolkien begins writing scraps – scraps that would later become the Silmarillion um, many, many years after The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings were published while he's in the trenches in World War II. I think the first bit he starts to write is Gondolin in uh, 1916. And then he takes a break because there's a war on um, and he has to start his career and he's writing sort of various snippets, but not anything incredibly coherent. Um while he's grading papers in 1937, I think. No, hang on. I'm going to get these zeros wrong. Anyways, he's grading papers as, as a uh, lecturer in um, uh, linguistics at Oxford. Uh, and a student didn't use all five or so pages of the test, the examination booklet to write their essay on. And as he's grading it on the very last page, he writes, in a hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit. And that later became the story of The Hobbit. And he writes The Hobbit and and publishes it to great acclaim. Everybody loves it. His publishers are quite literally banging down his door, begging for a sequel. Um, Sequel culture, there you go. And and for a long time, he sort of puts it off. Um, And... He, you know, he's, he's drafting sort of questions about, you know, what happens to Bilbo Baggins after he comes back from, from the, the quest, you know, what, what is Bilbo's life like once he's gone off and done this incredible thing? Does Bilbo have a wife? Does he have kids? What, what, what does his world look like? And as he starts to ask himself these questions... Um, And this is actually, this is the year 1937. This is where 1937 comes in. And he gets this idea for uh, a chapter basically fully, fully written, pops into his head, fully written. um, And that chapter is uh, concerning hobbits. Um, And he writes an ethnology of hobbits and and the hobbitry. um, And then he writes a long expected party. And those are the first two bits of The Lord of the Rings that he gets down. And he puts them down and puts them away from like autumn 1937 until the spring of 1938. And then he. Has this sort of, I won't call it like a moment of divine revelation because he'd obviously be fucking furious for that. But he has this moment where he realizes that the story of Bilbo Baggins is done. Um, Bilbo has had his ha- had his tale and it's time for the rest of them to go on. And I'm sure this in no way coincides with the fact that uh, shit was getting fucking awful uh, in Europe in the year 1938, certainly in the spring of 1938. Um, and The Lord of the Rings goes from being uh, an extension of Bilbo Baggins' tale to being the the epic that we know it is today. Um, And then he writes it all. Uh, He writes all 1300 pages of it over the next few years. Uh, So 1938 to 1943, he's just writing and writing and writing and writing The Lord of the Rings and not really taking much of a break. And then he gets to winter of 1943 and loses motivation and runs out of his Adderall prescription, I assume. Uh, We've all been there. It happens. Uh, And abandons the book for uh, most of that year. Um, and doesn't really touch it. No, there are no like additional notes. There are some letters um, that have later been published, that kind of detail that he's still thinking a bit about Lord of the Rings, but he's mostly getting caught up in, in his actual career uh, because turns out the man did actually have a day job, uh, regardless of whether or not he believed that. And then in April of 1944, he comes back to it. And we know for certain that in April of 1944, he's definitely writing The Two Towers. A letter to his son Christopher describes the character of Faramir, quote, wandering out of the woods uninvited, which helps us to place the chapters of Herbs and Stewed Rabbit and Window on the West in that month. It's also here important to note that April of 1944 represents some of the absolute troughs of the war certainly one of its most brutal periods, the worst fighting, and, of course, it's the lead-up to D-Day, which is when the Allied forces storm the beaches at Normandy in June of 1944. It's abundantly clear that the horrors of war are incredibly present in Tolkien's mind throughout the books generally, but especially in the chapters that he's writing in The Two Towers. In many ways, however, it's the return of the king which features, for example, the siege of Minas Tirith and the Battle of the Black Gate that deals with war in its most practical terms. For example, these big fuck-off battles. But The Two Towers is actually the book that deals most consistently and overtly with the psychological impact of war in wartime. Fellowship asks questions about the life in the run-up to a war. And Return of the King asks questions about life after the end of the war. How do we go back to what we had before. Do we even want to do that? But The Two Towers is all war all the time. And I think that is pretty clearly a reflection of the time at which Tolkien is writing it. So, Lord of the Rings is completed in 1947, two years after the war's end. But it's not actually until 1949 that Tolkien, a noted perfectionist, actually completes the manuscript. Despite Tolkien having wished for the the book to be published in three volumes, six books, Um, And this is actually really fascinating, and and it's a a nice little quirk of history, I think. Um, There were paper shortages, particularly in Britain, at the end of the war. Um, And obviously, the low availability of petty cash, uh, the the sort of uh, neo-imperialism, neo-colonialism of the Marshall Plan had sort of kicked in, but not fully. Um, His publishers were like, we can't publish a 1,300-page book. Uh, Nobody will be able to afford it, and we don't have enough paper in the country to fucking do that. So instead, they publish it in three separate volumes. Um, Admittedly, they are published several months apart, but it's not until uh, 1955 that Return of the King comes out after 1954 having had Fellowship and Two Towers. Um, I also just want to mention as an aside uh, that Tolkien hated the name uh, Return of the King uh, as a title because he thought it gave too much away, uh, which... Yep, that's correct. It definitely does. Um, his preferred title was *The War of the Ring*, uh, which was vetoed by his publishers, but later revived by Christopher Tolkien in the draft versions of the Lord of the Rings that are published in uh, the uh, History of Middle-Earth books, uh, and sort of worth checking out if you've got some time to spare, but also don't kill yourself over that. Anyways, uh, this is the book that is written at the absolute worst uh, parts of the war. Uh, It is also, uh, unsurprisingly, the, the, the book that feels like the worst and most miserable part of the war, Um, And uh, is one of these uh, immense sort of fascinating little quirks, tidbits of history, uh, of historical fact and the historical record that we're able to tie these two things so closely together and to really see uh, what the, the sort of artistic and cultural impact of the war is.
0: Uh one thing I want to jump in real quick is that the War of the Ring title was one of the working titles when this film was still in early pre-production and they considered pairing it down to two movies and they were going to just kind of have their Two Towers Return of the King mashup called The War of the Ring uh, to follow Christ. up The Fellowship of the Ring. So it almost it al- it almost got its moment but I'm glad we got a better adaptation in the end. <laughs> So I guess we can kind of close out today by asking the simple question, what are the two towers? <laughs> Emily?
1: Um, yeah, it, it's a good question. Um, actually, uh, Tolkien himself tried to keep it vague um, specifically because he wanted people to argue about it and debate it. Um, and then kind of uh, screwed the pooch on that because he immediately illustrated covers for uh, some of the early editions of the books that featured Orthanc on Minas Morgul and Minas Ethel. But some of the potential variations are Orthanc and Minas Tereth, which is my preferred one, Orthanc and Barador, Orthanc and, or sorry, Minas Tereth and Barador, and of course, Orthanc and Minas Morgul.
0: Yeah, and I, I think I, for the film at least, uh, lean towards Orthanc and Barakdor just because Sauruman explicitly says it uh, <laughs> later in the film, but I don't think anything in the books would indicate that. Um, which allows me to forward a couple of my own um, because uh, maybe even Cirith Ungol or just the mountain that holds it as well as Shelob and the Endless stair um, not the Endless stair, but a, a very long stare. <laughs> um, that's kind of where uh, Sam and Frodo end this book, just like uh, a Remaining Fellowship, the Three Hunters, Gandalf and Theoden, they kind of end it in the shadow of Isengard or Orthanc at the end. Um, so Orthanc and Cirith Ungol are kind of like the endpoints of this film. How uh, is not the Black Gate described uh, like as like the teeth of Mordor, and it's like uh, kind of has two towers at like kind of its opening, looking down on the gate. Am I wrong in that?
1: Yeah, um, I'm pretty sure. Oh, f- bugger! Uh, I'm gonna get roasted for not knowing my Sindarin properly. I'm I'm pretty sure Kirith means no. Kirith means like tower i think kirith gorgor which is the uh land just behind the mountains just around the Moran and the black gate it means like teeth of darkness um oh, damn someone's gonna have to fact check me on that but yeah yeah uh so so the sort of uh teeth tower uh motif absolutely applies yeah
0: so yeah so very much open inter- to interpretation i would say
1: i think there's also something kind of interesting here because. Uh, as you know, as we sort of throw out all of these potential interpretations, uh, one thing that um, is interesting until you uh, brought up uh, the the mountains around the Black Gate, and we went entirely to man made towers architecture. Um, but as we were talking about in one of the previous episodes, um, there is this potential, this very cool potential for the sort of natural towers of uh of the world to to play into this and you know um there's uh in in uh the uh, uh Black root Vale uh Mornan uh, there's the stone of Erech, which is uh, uh the stone at which uh the oath break well they were not then oath breakers but the the mountain men pledged their uh loyalty uh, allegiance to a sealeder and then later broke uh, that promised that oath and became the oath breakers who dwelled under the mountain um, and the stone of Rech is up on a, a high hill and so there's that compared to uh, like Amon Hen, Eamon Law, uh, Amon Sul uh, and uh, of course the the mountains of shadow, uh, the the uh, Ethel Duath uh, in, in Mordor is a uh, a, you know, one sort of variation on these natural towers. And then, of course, Mount Doom itself. Um, and so there's this kind of like interesting to me sort of interplay between like the 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 sort of like contrived man-made architecture and the like natural architecture. And, you know, why aren't we saying like sul against, uh, which, which has had its sort of important moments in this film or not in this film but in this story so far against mount doom or uh, the the hills in which rivendell uh, is uh, hidden why not those against uh, uh, against mount doom or you know any any sort of variation it's you know it's a kind of a bullshit point but i i do love the ambiguity of this t- the, this title because it means that you get to start exploring middle earth just through wanting to have these conversations about what the fuck does this mean
0: yeah, I don't want to just start throwing out things that are tall in Middle Earth and saying they are towers. <laughs> but, um I think the the interesting is not really what the individual two towers are, but what they, what kind of meaning you can derive from them in like contrast or in trying to compare the two. Like, let's say we go the whole natural route and compare Mount Doom to say the Misty Mountains where Gandalf has his baptism. And you have two very different kind of mountains, one of ice and one of fire. (laughs) Uh, I guess that's my (laughs) Song of Ice and Fire reference. Or even if you compare the Misty Mountains where Gandalf does his thing to Isengard or Orthanc where Saruman does his thing, the two wizards. And you have, you know, one living in a tower completely made of metal or man-made craft, and he's the one who falls. Whereas the one who's in the natural tower, the mountain, um, is the one that outlasts, at least. uh, We can say that, at least. So... Um, I think it's less so what the two towers are, but when you define what those two towers are, what exactly are you juxtaposing and trying to kind of draw meaning from is really where the fun begins.
1: Yeah, I think I might even argue, uh, just to be kind of a dick here, uh, there's so Tolkien has this weird thing around height. Uh, uh, he's he, you know he's also got the weird racism thing around like geography and morality, but height is also an indicator of morality. Um, and like Elendil, the high King Elendil was called Elendil the tall. Um, and the men of Numenor who came over, so Elendil was like eight foot tall and the men of Numenor who came over to middle earth were all fucking tall. Um, and as, uh, as, you know, Gondor and R start to dwindle and as the sort of morality of the men of Numenor, the legacy of the men of Numenor starts to get slightly murkier, they all literally get shorter, uh, which is don't think too hard about it because it's fucking crazy. Um, but, um, a lot of the important figures in the Lord of the Rings are obviously because Tolkien has a weird thing are described as tall. Um, and so Aragorn as we spoke about in the episode Strider is like seven foot. Um, Gandalf is actually significantly shorter than Aragorn. He's only meant to be like six foot. Um, Saruman is quite tall. Um, and then you've also got Denethor who is described as being incredibly tall. Um, and you've got all of these people, these, these, these men, unfortunately uniformly men actually you know what one does get described as tall anyways uh uniformly men who are described as as being uh uh tall uh and and these sort of here we go towering figures of middle earth and its politics um and so there's also this potential for like a people argument to it which is like you say Gandalf standing against Saruman or Aragorn standing against uh uh Sauron um and even potentially the sort of broken power of Theoden, whose whose back has has well in the books has been broken by his own pride, and in the films has been broken by a curse. And there's that sort of uh, slightly weird uh, uber mensch kind of uh, element to it as well. That's potentially worth uh, considering for for however fucked up the uh, underlying politics of it are.
0: Yeah, I was about to say Tolkien needs to include some more short kings in his story, but then I forgot the fucking <laughs> hobbits. <laughs> so I, I think he did just fine in that regard. <laughs> and that closes the book on this chapter of My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast. Our email is my brother, my captain, my podcast at gmail.com and my bro, my cap, my pod on Twitter and Instagram. You can support this podcast by subscribing to my Patreon, patreon.com slash Menuclearbomb which goes towards this and all the other projects I've been working on. Which Manuclear Bomb? Hey, that's me. I've been Manu. You can find me covering Metal Gear Solid over at Podcast Sounds Frontiers.
1: And I've been Emily, also known as JR Tweeting, which is where you could find me on Twitter, constantly saluting the short kings.
0: Hosting <laughs> a pint to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, aka DJ Empirical, on Twitter. Please like and review our podcast wherever you may be listening. So until next time, remember... I would have followed you, my brother, my captain, my king.